there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. back to the podcast. This is episode 49. And uh, today I'm not introducing a new usher. I'm uh, Some stories just sort of bear their own, you know, just all me, you know, that kind of thing, because uh, this was my Millennium Park experience. And so this is how we're going to do it. Um, one of the things that I, that I was kind of anticipating, because when I got the job at Millennium Park, one of the things I found out instantly was that, wait, wait, don't tell me, uh, the show that I house managed for a decade from 2007 to 2017 was coming to the park. And I had left 18 minutes earlier uh, in not the best circumstances. Um, I left WBEZ um, more, I was sort of forced out in, in, in a way. Um, and uh, my assistant, my longtime assistant uh, for five years, Tyler Green, was very instrumental in having me you know, sort of uh, marginalized to a point where, you know, I was replaced and he automatically, without any kind of loyalty or anything like that, he jumped ship and then arranged, worked uh, uh, behind the scenes to kind of oust me. And so when I did leave, uh, our, he and I, our relationship had completely soured. It was, it was, uh, it was really not very pleasant. And there were a lot of things uh, that, that came to it, which was sad. I mean, it actually was. It was very sad. I was pretty angry at the time. But it was really sad because he, I had mentored him um, at pretty much everything he learned about uh, producing events. He learned from me, which was fine. You know, that's kind of how I do believe. I do believe that uh, the, the role of a mentor is to train your replacement. And, in fact, that is exactly what I did. I don't know if I trained him as well as I, I could have. I wish I had, uh, I wish some of the lessons that I'd tried to impart to him had stuck, but they didn't. Um, and that's okay. That's totally fine. That's uh, water under the bridge. But knowing that Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me was coming, I knew I was going to be house managing for them again and that I would have to work with Tyler. And that was a little something I was a little uncomfortable with, at least initially. And so this is the tale of um, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me coming to Millennium Park. I knew it was coming. I was the house manager for the park. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me was coming to perform in the park. It was just a matter of time until Tyler Green started emailing me. He didn't email me at first, he mailed Anne over at D-Case, who by that point knew to trust that I would take care of anything she could think of and a lot that she hadn't. So Anne forwarded Tyler over to me 
And I responded professionally, if not cordially, something along the lines of, hey, Tyler, I can, I will be handling the front of house for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me this summer. I can answer any and all questions regarding their taping here. Can't wait to be the real house manager one final time. So it was cordial, but maybe not totally cordial. I knew that in this situation, I wanted to be as professional as possible. I was tasked to be the house manager and, and representative of both the Grant Park Music Festival and D-Case. And, you know, I couldn't, in good conscience, let my bruised ego and underlying disdain for the guy who helped orchestrate my exit from public radio affect that. This was not about me. This was about, wait, wait, don't tell me. This was about the audience. This was about all that. So I kept everything straightforward and treated him like I would someone I didn't really know because after five years of working with him, apparently, I didn't really know him at all. In the process, I realized that he decided to make sure to CC every email interaction to almost everyone possible. And I understood immediately that that was sort of him being protective, and I understand that. He wanted our emails to be monitored by my boss, by his boss, by the three additional people the station had to hire to replace their decades-long director of events. So I got it. It was all fine. So it went. Along with a lot of the back and forth, uh, a cat, Colin Miller, who was the guy they hired to replace Ann Yin for the NPR side of things, and he and I found some real common ground. We had a similar sense of humor. He knew that there was some uh, bad blood between Tyler and I. He kind of jumped into the breach. And he and I really just started feeling, fielding all of the NPR requests. Now, Tyler was still in on the show, but he was quickly made superfluous. He really became more like the shill for the money changers over on the WBEZ side. Now, as a side note, my loyalty when it came to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me always fell to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, to the NPR side. And if you don't understand, basically when I was hired as the house manager, I was hired as the house manager for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me in 2007 before I was hired as the director of events for WBZ. And there was a separation between those two things pretty consistently. Early on, Tori Malatia, who was the CEO at the time, um, confessed to me that uh, he had a really contentious relationship with uh, NPR, that WBEZ, that Tory really resented the fact that so many people in Chicago viewed WBEZ as simply the NPR station. He wanted a lot more original programming. He wanted to separate those two. And that caused a lot of rift between those two organizations and that I was the only person at the station in Chicago that was actually hired and working for both WBEZ and NPR. So I became sort of a, a, a bridge, an arbiter, a diplomat. I don't, I'm not sure how you would want to put it, but that was the position that I was put in. When it came to the show itself, my responsibility and my duty, in my opinion, was to absolutely make sure that the folks at Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me had a great experience, that they had solid house management, that everything they needed was taken care of so that they could just simply do the show. And that was what I did for a decade. Even when I became the director of events at WBEZ, um, I requested that, yeah, I would like to continue on as the house manager for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me because it was fun, because I liked those people. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't trust that anybody else that, that was hired would take the job as seriously. Uh, one of the things that I noticed very early on was that Tyler was more enamored of the star power 
of sort of the NPR famous people that would come on and that that got in the way, I think, of uh, his job. So it was one of the things that early on I banned him from going backstage because he really just wanted to hang out rather than actually work. And so that was a, an issue that I had. I had that with some volunteers as well. But one of the things that really exemplified that experience was when, uh, and this was not long uh, before things kind of turned sour, and I probably, I can guess that this probably had something to do with the decision that maybe I was not who uh, Goalie wanted as uh, her director of events and, and wait, wait, don't tell me. Tom Hanks, I was announced. It wasn't actually, it wasn't announced. Uh, Mike Danforth, the senior producer, came to me and he said, Here's the deal. Um, Peter's going to be out of town, and Tom Hanks is going to be our guest host. And he's going to come in for the whole week and work with the staff, and then he's going to host the show. What do you want to do about tickets? And I said, Well, if it's up to me, um, I know that if we announce that to people, that Everybody in NPR, all the hoi polloi at NPR, everybody at WBEZ is going to be scrambling to, first of all, make that a premiere night so that normal people aren't going to really get tickets. They're going to try to take as many tickets to make that a big fundraising opportunity. And I said, personally, while I understand that, I think that's a betrayal to our regular audience members. And he says, what do you want to do? I said, I think we should just not say anything and sell the tickets like we would do any order to, any other day. And then once all the tickets are sold, we let the people know that just bought their $30 ticket that they're going to get to see Tom Hanks host. It's a real benefit. It's one of those very, I think, very public radio experiences where they get gifted. You know, they were just coming for a regular show and now they're going to have an opportunity to see America's Dad, one of the most famous and amazingly cool people they could ever see on a stage in person. And that's what I said. And Mike Danforth, he was very cool. He said, whatever you want to do, that's what we'll do. And so I was thrilled with that. And so that's what it did. So when the word came down that the tickets were already sold out, that when they announced that Tom Hanks was going to be guest hosting, I got flooded uh, by my boss, Cassie Stevenson, and by our, our underwriters, and by everybody was like, we need seats for our major donors. And I said, there are no seats. There, it's sold out. It's already sold out. I got uh, the, the the CEO of NPR called me on the phone, furious at me that I had not saved any seats for his big funders and his big donors because I that was just to me. You know, and I understand why they were pissed. It's not like I think, oh yeah, you know. But I felt like it was a, a very egalitarian approach to the experience, and uh, and and ultimately. Those people that paid $30 to hang out with Tom Cruise were fucking thrilled. But that did, at one point, I got pulled aside by Cassie, and she was like, well, I don't understand where your loyalties lie. And I said, my loyalties lie with the audience. My loyalties for this show lie with, wait, wait, don't tell me, with that staff and with that crew. Um, if, if it, you know, I said, I'm sorry if you feel that this was a betrayal of WBEZ. I just felt like it was not, uh, it was not, I knew that it would turn into a circus. I knew that people would want to charge more money. I knew that everybody would make this, this big fundraising opportunity rather than gifting the regular audience, the, the, the normal people that just come see the show on a regular basis, rather than gifting them with an experience that they probably would never forget for the rest of their lives. 
And so that was the the Tom Hanks thing. And I'm I'm guessing that somewhere along the line that was where oh wow, Don's not really fit in the program. And I understand that. So that 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 was that was the thing. So as we got closer to the date of wait wait don't tell me in the park, like almost any other ancillary event, the wait wait don't first the WBEZ staff and then the wait wait don't tell me staff asked for more than the standard park arrangements. One of the things that was part of my job as the front of house manager for Wait, Wait, Don't, for, for any event in the park, was to make sure that I mitigated the, the experience for VIPs. You know, there, we always, with the, and, and the, the standard rule was that they always got about 500 seats, which isn't that much of the bowl, but it's a lot of seats. And that what I would almost always do is I would get the, from the, the Millennium Park office, wristbands, colored wristbands, and that way we didn't you know, have people just cheat, but colored wristbands that would uh, indicate, oh, these are the VIPs, and then my ushers would know who to let in the section that were VIPs. Uh, we don't traditionally allow anybody to put signage on the, the seats because that becomes, it, it, it starts to become sort of a logistical nightmare and hard for my ushers to be able to sort of deal with that situation. So we keep it as simple as possible. Usually it's purple wristbands or red wristbands. Just kind of keep it really simple, one wristband. Well, for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, um, they had seven, at a certain point, finally I realized I had gifted them seven different colored wristbands. They had so many requests for so many very specific rows of people and very specific kinds of VIPs that they had. They had a donor, uh, like like a big VIP reception before, and those people needed wristbands, and they had uh, sponsorship wristbands, and they—I mean, it, it was—it was—it was ridiculous, and it was of my making because I allowed it to happen, and so I was happy to do that. But uh, that was—it was—I I created a little bit of a nightmare for myself. So the day of the event. I mean, I was really kind of excited. I, I the, the whole Tyler thing kind of just passed by because I was excited to see Peter and Bill and, and his wife Donna and Amy Dickinson and Bobcat Goldthwait and all these people that I had worked with and was excited. I pulled a couple of copies of my book, Belief is a Sledgehammer, um, and I signed one to Amy Dickinson and one to Bill Curtis because both of them were gracious enough to read my book before I published it and write jacket blurbs. So I wanted to say thank you and actually give them a thing. I knew they were going to be running around busy, so I actually I just placed them. I placed Bill's on his podium and I placed Amy on her table where they would be performing. They wouldn't see it until they sat down ready for the show, which was kind of fun. Now, when I saw Colin... During the day, we immediately greeted each other like old friends, and we started, you know, getting set to set things into place. At one point, Tyler came up and he timidly said, "Hey, Don," and I did what I learned from my dad. I ignored his very existence. Now, V is my stepfather, and if you've listened to any Peculiar Journeys, you've heard him talk. And uh, I believe in episode or season one and season two, we have some stories from my dad, V. And one of the things that I learned from him a long time ago, um, and it was, I don't know if it's a great lesson, but it's the lesson that I learned, is that V, once, he'll he'll give everybody a number of chances. Um, but once you've really fucked him over, once a, a human being has really crossed that line, he doesn't get angry. I mean, I'm sure he gets angry. But his response is to then eliminate that human being from his very consciousness. He 
pretends on some level that they no longer exist. And it is easier. He just completely cuts them out of their life. This goes hand in hand with sort of my way of dealing with broken relationships. And maybe this is because I grew up jumping around from place to place. I was always the new kid. And so I often did not have uh, lasting friendships because we'd go from, you know, it's like I'd spend a year learning the ropes and getting friends and then immediately leave and go to a completely different area of the world and have to start all over again and get new friends. So I think at a certain point, my tendency to kind of cut things out, it's, it's, it's an odd choice that, uh, you know, at 52, I do not have a single picture of either of my ex-wives anywhere. They're gone. I mean, I eliminated them. When I dated Alice, when I was with her for four years, as soon as that thing kind of soured, I got rid of every possible reminder that I was ever with her. It just, for me, I don't know if it's uh, good for everybody. Maybe it's just sort of an Irish thing of just like kind of stuffing things away. But the less I'm reminded that those people exist, the easier, you know? And it doesn't mean I'm gonna be shitty to him. And I wasn't shitty to Tyler, but when I saw him, just like V, he did not exist in my world. He was just some random guy um, who I did not acknowledge his presence in any significant way. And that was kind of how I did it. And that was fine. You know, it was, it was a little awkward and, 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 and some of the people in no particular order, you know, the, the staff that day, the staff at WBEZ began the day by thinking that they could do pretty much anything they wanted. And I'd opened that gate for them. So they waltzed right through it. On the day of the show, however, that was when, that's usually when I had to start saying no because people kept asking for things last minute and it became unmanageable. So I had to say no to additional seating unplanned for. I had to say no to their people taking backstage tours during the show. I had to say no to additional classes of wristbands. Seven was fucking plenty. No to reworking the seating bowl so that sponsors could sit closer or further or whatever. The NPR crew, however, were never told no. I mean, I'm not going to say no to Colin, Lorna, Robert, Miles. Those guys got anything and everything they wanted, even if it was slightly unreasonable. And there were a couple of unreasonable requests, but I made sure I granted to him because, you know, as as we discovered with the Tom Hanks thing, I guess my loyalty was with those cats. Um, And ultimately, it was always the crew and this is not to disparage any of the talent uh, that were a part of the show, but it was the crew that I really, uh, I really gravitated toward. Those were my people. Those are the people that I had. I have. I, I had, and I still have great love for Miles Durnboss, Dan Forth, Lorna, Rob, Gary Yeck, um, and now I felt a real affinity with Colin. And the good feelings, and the hugs, and the laughter, and the pictures, and the the addition of the gossip and all that nonsense. It just was, it was really lovely. And I had a lot of a mixed, mixed emotions, but the mixed emotions were not negative. There was, there was a, a happiness that I had for being there, and I was thrilled to be around them again. There was a sadness that I don't do that anymore. Um, all that kind of stuff. A pride that they, you know, they had such a high regard for me and what I did. All that kind of stuff. Apparently, my coldness toward Tyler was noticed by everyone. Um, because they all knew how things had gone down. Some people, uh, for the most part, some people were just kind of uncomfortable around me because they knew that, you know, there, there was, you know, that mixed sort of uh, loyalty. 
other people would just come to me, and I had a couple people just come to me and just want to dish on what a horrible house manager Tyler was and how much they disliked him and, and that he had changed and all this kind of stuff. And so I listened, and of course, in a petty, in the pettiest of sort of ways, felt very good about that. But uh, ultimately, the show went off, and as the show was going on, we had a moment where we might have to evacuate 17,000 people out of the park. Now, let me explain that. The protocol for Millennium Park is, if you've been to Millennium Park or you see Millennium Park, it is effectively surrounded by a giant metal basket. The lattice work is all metal. The facade of the Pritzker is all metal. And we do shows rain or shine. If it's raining, you do a show. That's it. It's just deal with it. But as soon as lightning is present, we have to evacuate the park. We have two options in the protocol. The protocol is to either evacuate the park and get everybody stuffed into the parking garage, wait it out and see if we can then continue whatever program is going on, or if it looks like it's just too much and it's not going to pass anytime soon, we go ahead and evacuate the park and cancel whatever's going on. That hadn't happened in the park in probably five years. They had not had to cancel a, a show due to rain, due to thunderstorms, for about five years. And the interesting thing was very few people actually knew the protocol. I knew the protocol because like within my first day or week working there, I knew that I was going to have to learn that protocol because that's, you know, I mean, if I didn't know it sort of like that fast, there were going to be problems and somebody might get hurt if we had to do that. So I knew the protocol, and it, we saw lightning. We saw lightning in the sky, so I called Micah, and Micah called the Office of Emergency Management to see what, you know, because they had more advanced radar than, than our phones did. And they said, yeah, there's, you know, there was thunderstorm. It didn't, they couldn't tell if it was coming our way. It was about 10 miles out, but you could see lightning, and that they would let us know what was going on. So immediately I grabbed a DK's person, I grabbed our security, I grabbed our secondary security, and we went backstage and that was one of the few times I had to talk to Tyler um, and let them know and grab Miles off the stage. And they're doing the show at this time. And we had to let them know that these were our options, that we could either, you know, that, that if things that they needed to be prepared, that we may have to stop the show and evacuate the park and here's the procedure and this is how we do it. And everybody, Miles, everybody was great. They decided they'd just keep doing the show. They let the crew know, they let the show, you know, the, the cast know. And so there were a bunch of jokes then that actually I don't think made the final airing about the thunderstorm. As the rain started happening, the 17,000 people started to clear out. People on the lawn decided that they didn't want to sit and get rained on. So they started to clear out until it was about 10,000 people in the park. Um, and ultimately, we did not have to. I mean, I, and, and at that point, I stopped watching the show or enjoying, sort of enjoying that experience and really keeping an eye on the sky, on my radar, on my phone, making sure that I was checking in with the Office of Emergency Management to make sure that we didn't have to go to the extreme, the extreme and actually close the park down. We did not have to do that in the end. The evening was just a blast. And you know, it was one of the things, it was one of the moments of closure that I, I realized, I didn't realize that I needed. Um, you know, after a decade of service, it was a little abrupt. Um, I was told, uh, I was told that I was no longer going to be necessary at WBEZ and was given severance 
on a Friday night, the the day or a Friday Friday day, the day after a wait wait don't tell me, and was told at that moment that I was no longer going to be used for wait wait don't tell me. So I didn't even get to have sort of like a farewell show. I didn't have I didn't get to have that moment where I got to say goodbye to everybody um, on, on a sort of more of official more. Uh, show kind of centric thing you know there was no and I don't know if it needed to be ceremonial but just sort of that kind of thing I didn't get that it was like okay you did it last night and you didn't know it but last night was your last night and that was a little off-putting it, it was a little uncomfortable and I didn't realize after a year and a half that it still weighed on me it still uh, made me uncomfortable made me unhappy that that was kind of how things did and this was that experience I got to say farewell to the show um, again, now on my turf, uh, doing a big job for them and helping them in every way, and, and and the goodwill and the good feelings were remarkable, and it just felt right. It was just the right way to go out, and I had no idea that was the right way to go out, but it felt really good, and I was really happy to have done it. All right, that is episode 49 of Millennium Park Stories. Join me next week. We're going to have uh, some more ushers that we'll uh, be bringing back. And uh, I hope you're enjoying uh, where, where we're going with this. I've got tons, tons, tons more stories, including uh, at some point the story of when we did actually have to evacuate the entire park because of a thunderstorm. Um, and that was kind of a remarkable and intense night I will I will confess so if you're listening and you enjoy it I've, I've said this before I'll keep saying it um, please share it with someone share it on your blog share it on your social media let people know that you enjoy uh, peculiar journeys and that you would like them to listen to it just a recommendation that you think it's cool if you really like it go on to Apple podcasts and subscribe and then uh, rate it review it give it a star rating say a few words like a sentence or two that just say this is why you like it or this is why you think it's a bunch of shit, which is fine. Um, and if you really, really, really like it, um, go to www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and uh, throw me a couple bucks a month. It's not hard. It's just like the public radio thing. I try to keep exclusive content like this video. Um, for those of you that are just listening, you don't see the video. But if you are a Patreon subscriber, I am, I've been videotaping, videotaping, videoing, filming, whatever you want to call it, um, my recording sessions as an exclusive. So that that's kind of the thing that I do. So if you enjoy it and you want to give me a few dollars, uh, every dollar helps. It's a really lovely gesture and I genuinely appreciate it. With that in mind, thank you for listening and we'll, we'll hear from you next week. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud, or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys. Peculiar Journeys.